I'm trying to go there. It's not going. There we are. This morning, we continue our series through the Bible, and we're coming to the book of Deuteronomy. I'd encourage you to turn there if you haven't been reading there already this week. And, and as I was reading this book, the words of David in the Psalms continued to come to mind. David declares in Psalm 40, he says, I delight to do your will, O God, my God. Your law is within my heart. What a powerful statement. Your law is in my heart. He would declare in Psalm 119, and I had to pick and choose because throughout this amazing chapter, he is declaring it over and over. But in, in verse 97, he goes, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Later in verse 165, there's a lot of verses in that psalm, by the way. Those who love your law have great peace. That's quite a concept, isn't it? And nothing causes them to stumble. We, we come to Deuteronomy and we are considering that, that final book of, of the Torah, the, the fifth book of the law, Deuteronomy. And this week, as I have just flipped through the pages, reading one verse in one chapter after another, it has just honestly become just such a beautiful book to me. It wasn't always that way. In Bible college, we had a saying about Deuteronomy. It was a duty to read through it. Um, we, we puzzled at why we would have to read something that we'd already read. Because it looks so familiar to Leviticus and Numbers and Exodus. We're like, why? And we would struggle getting through our reading and we would read it, honestly, most of us, begrudgingly. And there have been times when I read through the Bible each year I come to Deuteronomy and I approach it kind of in a humdrum manner. I'm like, oh, the law again. But as I read it this week, as, as I looked at the pages and I strived hard to, to discover this God. Because remember, as we're going through each of these books of the Bible, not only are we discovering what God was writing and when and where it is in the context of Scripture, we are discovering our God in a greater, more powerful way. And as I turn through the pages of Deuteronomy, I too begin to delight in the verses of Deuteronomy. I, I began to, to fall in love with this God deeper and deeper. And honestly, there was just a peace as, as I discovered who he was in such a deep manner. I'd encourage you, if you've been like myself, reading through Deuteronomy and it just kind of, oh, this book again. 
to approach it with a fresh set of eyes and look at our God. Discover who he is as you read through the pages of this book. Deuteronomy often called the, the second law, which was one of the things that frustrated us, is also called the book of remembrance. As I thought about that, that concept, a book of remembrance, I thought about us as people. How many of you need reminding? Okay, good. About three-fourths of you. Good. The rest of you, man, kudos. I have alarms and, and notes and calendars that have to remind me. If I ever say I'm praying for you, don't get offended if I pull up my phone and set a reminder. I care. I genuinely do. But I have to be reminded. I love the fact that Easter comes every year. Because I need to be reminded of the power of the passion of God in that empty tomb. We are a people that need to remember, and God knew that, and so as he draws these people together, he reminds them of some very important things. And in this book, we are going to see the heart of God in a beautiful, passionate way. Deuteronomy opens up this way in chapter 1, verse 1. These are the words... In fact, the, the Hebrew title simply means the words. We're looking at the words, the words that God is going to give this generation going into the promised land. These are the words which Moses spoke to all Israel across the Jordan in the wilderness, in the, I'm going to butcher some of this, Abraham um, opposite Shoe between Paran and Tophel and Laban and Hazareth and Disahab. <laughs> yeah, you try reading that out loud. It is a seven days journey. Or sorry, it is an 11 days journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. Did you catch that? Look at that. Go back one slide. 11 days journey. That's not bad, is it? But then the next verse. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all the Lord had commanded him to give to them. After he had defeated Shion, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Basham, whom lived in Ashtaroth, and Edri. Across the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to expound this law, saying, And he begins to teach. 
The setting that, that we are approaching this book is, is an amazing setting. They are where they should have been with an 11-day journey 40 years ago. There was a generation before them that was in that location had the opportunity to go into the promised land. But here they stand 40 years later. A whole new generation. Think about that for just a moment. Everyone standing before Moses, with the exception of Caleb and Joshua, There is no one from that previous generation. They're all dead. And here before them stands this generation. I want you all just for a moment to think about the generation or generations that came before you. And I want you to think about the excuses that you have laid the burdens on that generation for your actions. There are no excuses here. They could have had some. But God doesn't permit sin in your life or my life because of the sins of a generation before us. God does not allow those excuses. They may be reasons. They may be things that you need to work through and struggle through and go to God before with. But they're not an excuse. They could have easily gone and said, God, the generation before us, they disobeyed. They were fearful. They grumbled. It's just the way we are, God. But here stands a new generation. They could have come to God and said, God, you know, we were kids and, you know, you're really impressionable when you're kids and we were in Egypt and all those pagan gods. We were impressed during that, that childhood stage. But that's not an excuse. They could have said, God, we grew up in a wilderness. We didn't have the, the ease or the luxury of others. I mean, we had food, but we really didn't have much variety. I mean, the excuses could come and come and come, couldn't they? I love this generation, though. Because this generation also had eyes. Eyes to see what God had done. Think about that. Many of them would have been in their teens or as a child walking through the Red Sea as the waters parted. They would have remembered that. They would have remembered Pharaoh's army being consumed. They would have remembered how God provided manna day in, day out. They would have seen. They would have heard the commands of God given at Mount Sinai. They had minds to learn. To learn from others' failures. 
others' failures. Don't use them as an excuse. Allow them to be an opportunity to allow you to grow. And they stand before Moses, they stand before God with a choice. This morning, I don't know what kind of baggage, what kind of past, what kind of parents, grandparents, what kind of life you have had. I know many in here have some very difficult past. So do I. Don't use it as an excuse. It's this generation that stands before Moses, that stands before God. And by many, and I, I believe rightfully so, is declared to be the greatest generation of Israel. This is the generation that we get to look at next week in Joshua. And they stand before and they hear what God is about to say. But not only do they hear, they implement the words of this book. What would happen if you and I took the words of this book and applied them to our lives? Imagine what God could do in and through you. I mean, they had the audacity to believe what God said. I mean, think about this. Look at, look at chapter uh, 20 with me. Chapter 20, God says something that would just blow your mind, right? Verse 1, look, it says, When you go out to battle against your enemies, not if, when. That's right, they're going to engage in battle. And see horses and chariots. And people more numerous than you. By the way, if you're not a military person, that's a bad thing. Okay? You're seeing a more powerful, more equipped military that you are going to go up against. God says, do not be afraid of them. That's the natural response. Fear. Panic. God says, mm -mm. do not be afraid of them for the Lord your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt is with you. Wow. And they had the audacity to believe God. Wait till Joshua. Look, look at what he says though. And when they go into the land, when they engage with these people, listen. Look at verse 17 of that same chapter. But you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite and the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, 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 yeah. the Hivite, the Jebusite, as the Lord your God has commanded you, so that they may not teach you to do according to all their detestable things which they have done for their gods. So that you would sin against the Lord your God. They had the audacity as they go into this land to believe the words of this book. 
and they obey. This, this book of Deuteronomy is, is an amazing setup. And once again, these slides, if you want them, are on the website. But as we go through Deuteronomy, there's, there's three different sermons that, that Moses delivers to the people before he dies, before they go into the land. And these sermons are necessary. I, I can almost imagine Moses' heart as he's... he's declaring these things to the people, these people that he has shepherded for 40 years. He knows what they're going into, and these are the things that God has him deliver. He both speaks them and writes them down. I love that you get to hear it and read it. Why write it down? Because these are things that are going to be passed from generation to generation to generation. They are not just for this group. And they're going to discover that. Sermon 1 is all about what God has done for Israel. He goes all the way back to Egypt and declares the victories and Israel's failures. We don't like to look back sometimes and remember our failures, do we? Some of us journal, some of us, you know, record those things and we remember. My kids get a kick out of it when I sit down at the fire pit or something and I'm like, oh man, let me tell you about a time I messed up. Man, they will drop everything they are doing to hear about dad messing up. But I hope they learn from it. It's an opportunity to learn and to learn. Hopefully, I as a father do the job of pointing them to what God was teaching me so they too in that lesson can learn what God wants them to know for their life. And we record the failures of Israel, but the faithfulness of God. What a beautiful thing to remember God's faithfulness? Have you ever screwed up and God was still faithful to you? The answer is yes, even if you don't feel like it. He is faithful. And He wants you to come back. See, sometimes when we're unfaithful, we just keep running the opposite way. God's like, no, come. But he wants them to remember. Over and over in this book, remember this, remember this, remember that. Because they're forgetful. The second sermon was all about what God expects from them. They are going into a new land. They are going into new people, new gods, new temptations. And God says, this is how I want you to live. And he delivers to them moral and legal obligations before God himself. This is how I want you to live, God says. There's a, there's a lot of repeating of the law in that second sermon. In fact, you get to go and see the Ten Commandments all over again. You get to see God deliver truths about himself, about how they engage with one another. 
It's interesting, in Genesis to Numbers, we see how God is working. There's a great deal of the how. There's a great deal of how to worship, how God is bringing them out, how God is redeeming them. But as you look at Deuteronomy, we see his heart. As God expresses his law, he expresses his heart for these people. His love for them. And he wants them to understand that he desires them to love him in return and obey him. And we see this in that, that second sermon. Because they are going into a land with many, many gods, lowercase g. You and I are in a land with many, many, many gods. One of those gods is just around the corner. It's called springtime. And it's the god of the outdoors. It's the god of, of extracurricular activities. And we push God away until the weather gets bad again. I love the outdoors, by the way. In fact, God has called us to care for his creation, but not at the expense of missing the creator. And God expresses that he demands their undivided worship of him. The sermon has three parts in that, that middle sermon. It's, it's the biggest chunk of, of the book there. But it describes the, the moral duties of these people. The commands that are, are given. If you go to chapter 6, and we'll be there a couple of times, so keep your finger there. But in chapter 6, I love this passage. I've challenged fathers to memorize this before. But verse 6 says this of chapter 6. These words, which I am commanding you today. Notice that's commanding you, not suggesting. Shall be on your heart. It should be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and talk. You shall talk of them. In your conversation, the things of God's Word should come up. Not just in those moments of teaching, but in your conversation. He goes on. You shall, um, shall talk of them when you sit in your houses, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. If I read that correctly, that means from the time you wake up in the morning to the time you go to bed. Everything you're doing. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as uh, frontals on your forehead. You shall write them 
on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. God's word should be prevalent in their lives. Second part of it expresses the ceremonial duties that they should do. The things that they were to, part, uh, the sacrifices, the tithes, the feast. And then the third part of that sermon, I love this. God even cares about their, their civil and social duties with each other. As they go into this land, God cares about how they work and act as a community with one another, with those outside their community. And he reminds them of how they should behave. Why, why would God do that? Why does God care about how you and I interact with each other and with outsiders? Why? Thank you. Wow. I even got an answer. I was wondering if I would. We reflect Him. It says in Genesis, I know that was like five books ago, okay? But in Genesis, you and I are created in His image. We reflect God. So he says, this is how I want you to behave. You represent me, he says. And it's still true today. As a believer, as a follower of Jesus Christ, as one who has placed their faith in the finished work of Calvary, his death, burial, and resurrection, we have the Holy Spirit come and, and take up dwelling within us. We represent Him. In Sermon 3, what God will do for Israel. Sermon 3 is a sobering, sobering sermon. And it was one that I imagine just tore the heart of Moses up. Moses declares to them, he's, he's almost writing history in advance. It's fascinating. You read that sermon, and it's like you read the rest of the Old Testament. He says there is going to come a time soon that you're going to abandon God. And we see that in the book of Judges. He goes, there's going to become a time later down the road where you're going to disobey him and your disobedience will lead to your exile. You will leave this land that I have promised you. You will abandon God. We see that in the prophets. But through it all, God is faithful Moses pleads with them he even gave them a song to sing it's amazing songs just they, the melody causes us to remember doesn't it we have some kids that memorize an awana to a, to a melody to a song Moses gives them a song so they remember so hopefully they won't depart from these words in that third sermon Moses passes that baton on to Joshua. Before all the people, Joshua is now your leader. And we see the death of Moses. 
I was at the play last night and I heard a line in the play. It made me chuckle, but I had to repeat it tonight. No, today. Tonight. Last night I heard it. I had to repeat it today. Life is like walking on a tightrope. At the end of it is a coffin. See, when we walk this life, guess what's at the end? It's not a hard guess. Death, yeah, everybody dies. That's at the end of life. This is beautiful, the way God records the death of Moses. I'll summarize for you. He says, Moses, you've done everything I have you to do. It's now time to die. He says that to Moses. You've done everything. Now it's time for you to die. I think that is one of the most comforting things in Scripture to read. Jed, you've done everything I need you to do. It's time for you to die. Okay. I mean, I don't want to be here if I'm being useless. I don't want to be here if there's nothing left for me to do for God until he uses me up, drains me, and I am done serving him. Then I die. And I get to continue eternity with him. Deuteronomy, the very last verses, is his epitaph. His obituary, so to speak. And God writes it. Look at these verses. And this is how Deuteronomy closes. Since the time, since that time, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses. Whom the Lord knew face to face. For all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh, all his servants, and all the land. And for all the mighty power and for all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. None like him. It's pretty impressive for God to say about a man, isn't it? This is a man God spoke to face to face. It closes with his death, and in the middle sermon, there is a beautiful thing that captures the heart of this book. It's called the Shema. The Jewish people today still memorize this and recite it it's found in chapter 6 I want you to go back to it right before the, the, we're, we're told to pass these things on to generation generation our sons, our daughters <clears throat> verse 4 and 5 say this hear O Israel the Lord is our God the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, <clears throat> with all your soul, and with all your might. Shema. Shema simply is taken from the very first word. Hear, listen, pay attention. And as we, as we look at this powerful, powerful 
passage of Scripture. Look at it. Pay attention. Church, this is important for you and I as well. Don't miss it. And in these verses encompasses the whole book of Deuteronomy. Some still pray this prayer twice a day as, as Jews. Once in the morning when they wake, once in the evening before they go to sleep. What a reminder, what a thing to remember. Paul, as he would <clears throat> write the Corinthian church, would remind them of the importance of this singularity of our God. That he alone is God. Look at verses 4, verse 4, <clears throat> sorry, 5 and 6 of uh, chapter 8. Can you hand me my water? <clears throat> I thought I could get through, sorry. Almost done. Paul says this. For even if there are so-called gods, I love that, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things we exist for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom all things and we exist through him. What a statement about our God. Jesus himself would declare to a lawyer, a man of law, he would say, what is the greatest command? This is how Jesus answered. And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two, on these two commands, depend the whole law and the prophets. Did you see what God did there? God in the flesh says the greatest command is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. You get that one down, you're doing good. Then let's, let's also wrap in that second. And Jesus himself goes back to Leviticus and he quotes from Leviticus. Look what he says. He says in Leviticus, You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people. You know what? That's a sermon in itself right there. Just let that soak in. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. To emphasize it, I am the Lord. 
And he ties these two together. It's like it. Because if you love God with everything you have, and then you go and you look around you, and you love others as yourself, you are now bearing the image of God himself to those around you. It's beautiful. The first command encompasses all four of the ten, first four of the Ten Commandments, which deal with God. Love your neighbor as yourself deals with the other six. You know, if we just did that, if we just did that, church, Imagine the testimony we would have. There's a beautiful teaching cycle in this book. We're commanded to love God. Throughout the book we see that. It's, it, it's our emotion. God gave us emotions. But it's far deeper than that. It's also a decision. It's a decision. I know I'm not going to sound very pastor-like right now, but did you know that there's some days I don't feel like loving God? It's due to my sin, okay? But I don't feel. I have to make a conscious decision to love God. And in loving God, then I obey God. I, I give my, my whole devotion to Him and Him alone. It's more than listening to, though. Because you can come on a Sunday morning, you can listen to a podcast, you can open up, listen and read the words of Scripture, you can hear them, you can listen to them, but unless you engage, unless you respond... worthless but when we do we then love God and as we love God we we obey him and we listen and, and you see throughout the book we see this beautiful powerful cycle that should be present in your life and mine but there's a problem we have a heart issue the issue is your heart and mine. It's an issue of the heart. And, I mean, think about this as we read Deuteronomy. Over 50 times in this book, it says, listen, hear, pay attention. But we don't. 177 times. Bare minimum, it says, keep this, do this, observe this. But we don't. One, it's a heart issue. Well over 21 times, it, we're told to do something out of a heart of love. But we don't because there's a problem with the heart, isn't there? 
And time and time again in this book, we are told that God loves, that we are shown the heart of God. Yet also, as we look at the heart of God, as we look in the mirror of these things that he says, obey me, love me. As we see him, we see the reflection and we see our hearts. And we see our hearts and we're like, God, why would you choose me? God, why would you choose Israel? I'm glad you asked because there is an answer. In chapter 7, God answers that question. Verses 6 through 9. For you, now God's talking to Israel, are holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. What a statement. God says, Israel, I'm choosing you. And they're like, look at us, aren't we special? And then there's verse 7. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. But, here's why. Because the Lord loved you. Because the Lord loved you. And kept an oath which he swore to your forefathers the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery for the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. I love you, so you love me and keep my commandments. Do you know why God sent his son to die on the cross? John 3.16 says, because he loved you. We see this heart of God. And we see God. Once again, Israel is reminded of this holy, righteous pure God but they are reminded of his love they are reminded God is a jealous God he wants you and only you he wants you to worship him and only him he has that right you know to expect our undivided worship of him our undivided obedience Christ is pictured beautifully in this book we see that that there is salvation through God and God alone we see that the one that is hung on a on a tree is a curse and we see that Jesus himself took that curse for you and me 
We see that Moses says, one day there will be one who comes. There will be a prophet far greater than I that will come up amongst you, and he will deliver the words of God. He will be the word of God. As we look at Deuteronomy, we see an amazing God. We see an amazing love. My prayer is that as we look at God's Word, as we unveil the the pages of Scripture going through book by book and see God in a greater way, that our hearts, like David, would cry out, God, we love you. God, we love your law, your commands. They are right, they are holy, they are pure, they are good. We, in turn, with the psalmist in Psalm 119.74, we will declare, I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Will you delight in his law? Let's pray.